Let's read together from verses 1 through 11 initially, and then we'll look on from 12 through 19 just in a moment. But here in chapter 6, Luke is definitely making a more prevalent point that Jesus is Lord, meaning he is the expected Messiah, that he is the God-man, that he is God the Son come in the flesh to redeem us. All of those things wrapped up into just that terminology of Lord. And I want us to notice as we look at these verses this morning, Jesus' preeminence and his power. And, and one of the ways we see that in this passage is his choosing and teaching his pupils to fulfill his reign in this world. So Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto them, Why do you do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? Jesus answering them said, Have you not read so much as this, what David did when himself was in hungered? And they which were with him, how he went into the house of God and did take and eat the showbread and gave also to them that were with him, which it is not lawful to eat but for the priest alone. And he said unto them, that the Son of Man is the Lord also of the Sabbath. And it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he rose and he stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking about, round about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together in your word. Bless us now as we look to it for guidance. We want to grow in you. And we ask you to use your word and the power of your Holy Spirit this morning to lead us and direct us. Help us to learn to live a life where we glorify God in all things while we enjoy him and all that he's given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So we begin here with the thought of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is superior. And we find this presented by Luke in the account of two different Sabbath days. On the first, his disciples pluck and they eat corn. On the other, Jesus heals a man who has a withered hand. Besides what else we're going to get into here, I want to make a, a point here on the position of the religious leaders of the day. They were saying the sick can be healed, but just not today. The hungry can be fed, but you should probably do that tomorrow because we have more pressing things, specifically our religious rituals that we've got to deal with today. And I think this is highly problematic. There's more to this text, and we're going to get into more of this text, but just in and of itself, right off the bat, this is a highly problematic point of view for especially those who consider themselves God's people in that day and in this place. It's a good note for us, ourselves. 
Let us never get so consumed with whatever it is we determine that we should be doing that we cannot love in a way that would help the sick and feed the hungry. I also want to make some clarifying thoughts on the Sabbath. Most of this is from Warren Wearsby. He writes about the Sabbath to modern Christians. But I think it's important that we grasp what the Sabbath is and what the Sabbath isn't. Now, the term Sabbath is rest, and we understand that after creation, God rested. The idea for humans was, and it was given in the law, if God needs rest, surely you do too, and it's not that he needs it, but God took it. He took that rest. Part of the curse was the loss of rest. So in keeping the law all week, At the end of that week, you were kind of awarded or you were forced to take a day of rest. But to call Sunday the Sabbath is to confuse two specific things in Scripture that are not the same. It is to confuse the first day of the week and the seventh day of the week. And to confuse what each of these days signifies. The Sabbath is a reminder of the completion of the old creation. The Lord's Day, though, Sunday, the first day of the week, is different. This is a reminder of the Lord's finished work in the new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 4.24, And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So as we address these verses this morning, I want us to be sure that the Sabbath speaks of rest after work, which relates to the law. While the Lord's day that we have now, that which wasn't yet in this time of our passage, but what they were getting, Jesus was getting them ready for, the Lord's day speaks of rest before work. And this relates to grace. There's a great difference there, and thus it's a transition, religiously for sure, but also socially, culturally. It would have been a transition in their businesses, their financial practices, in all things of life, what Jesus is doing here. And we see their reaction to it in verse number 11 because they begin to talk to each other and say, what are we going to do to this guy? The issue here is that of Sabbath. They had their way. They had its meaning. They had how they wanted it to be. For six days we labor. That's what God did. And then on the Sabbath we rest. And we don't do these things on the Sabbath. And here comes this guy and he's doing something else. Not lawful for them to pick and eat on the Sabbath. It's not lawful for them to heal on the Sabbath. Do you hear just how insane that sounds? Here's this guy with a withered hand and you can heal him, but you've got to wait till tomorrow. This... This bugs me in criminal movies. I like like prison movies. Alcatraz. There's one better than that that I like very much. I can't think of the name of it right now. What's the one? Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, yeah. Clear play on Vidangelum. You know, they're prison movies. You can't watch them like they are. But one thing that bothers me on these things, these guys will get their release. You know, they go sit before this board and they say, all right, we're going to let you out of prison next Tuesday. And what always happens between now and next Tuesday? Something bad happens to this guy. You know, he was going to get out. He was going to go see his family. He was going to dig up his treasure under a tree somewhere. 
and then he gets killed. You know, it's just it's a horrible thing. It's like they can't, they have to wait. Just let him out right then. Well, this is this is kind of along those lines. Well, you can heal him, but you can't do it till tomorrow. And Jesus is saying, I don't think you guys understand. You work for your rest. But what I'm bringing is going to give you rest that will cause you to want to go work. Man, what a blessing. Aren't you glad you live in the day of grace? Aren't you glad you weren't born in the time of you had to bring a goat with you to church this morning and we had to cut its throat? I mean, this is a real deal, folks. This is where we are. This is why I'm looking at us and saying, smile when you say, oh, how wonderful, oh, how marvelous. And some of you were. Those of you who were singing the right line, like me, the oh, how wonderful part is the right part to sing. No, we sing it both. So this is happening here in this text. Let's look at it, the accusations, and then Jesus' response to the accusations. First, the accusation is, it's not lawful for you to pick and prepare and eat corn on the Sabbath. Well, I love how Jesus deals with this. He deals with it as he always deals with things, with the word. In verse 3 and 4, Jesus answering said unto them, Have you not read? And that's never a fun accusation, is it? You say something to somebody and they say, Well, have you been reading your Bible? We're Bible thumpers. We're supposed to have our, our Bibles ever before us. It's a good practice to be in. It's a good way for you to sharpen someone else's iron. If you're doing it yourself, it's good for you to greet someone with, What you read in the Bible this morning? Not in an accusing way, out of curiosity. They can't tell you. Either they didn't do it, or they weren't paying attention when they went through the practice of it. Everybody, Anybody ever guilty there? Oh, I did it. I read my Bible. What did you read? I don't even remember. Where did you read? Uh, wherever my reading plan told me to read today. Well, well that kind of puts us back in that boat of we're going to work so we can have some rest. I don't want to face God that way. I want to face God in the rest that Christ earned, that Christ worked for. And I'm happy now in that rest to go and work under grace. So Jesus says here, have you not read so much as this? What David did when himself was in hunger, they which were with him. And this is from 1 Samuel 21. He says in verse 4, how he went into the house of God and did take and eat the showbread and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests, Along And Jesus deals with two things there. Number one, taking that which is considered holy and only for those who can handle the holy and giving it to to the commoners. He's almost already pre-preparing them for the healing thing that's going to come up later on another Sabbath. But he also deals with this idea of it's, it's, it's all right to break the Sabbath in this regard. And he uses Scripture for his defense. Now, he's God. And he will say, I am Lord of the Sabbath. So saying, I can do whatever I want because I'm Lord of this day. But even he initially doesn't do that. He just says, well, here's what the Bible says about that. It's a way to live your life, Christians. What does the Bible say? I want to hear from the Lord. Well, what does the Bible say? I want God to speak to me. Well, he's speaking to you through the word. That's what Jesus leaned on. He's tempted in the wilderness. He needed God to lead him, to help him through this. And what did he lean hard into? Satan, have you not read? Three times. Satan, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Now Satan's using these Pharisees to buffet Christ. And he says to them, well, have you guys not read? We, most, we must also note, in, in, in addition to Jesus reading the, using the Scriptures here as his defense, this sort of gleaning was customary in their day. It was actually expected in their culture. 
So the followers of Christ, by walking through these fields and plucking a little bit of this grain, they were not stealing. This was a part of their society's way of caring for those who were hungry. And I like that way. They didn't say, all of you farmers, take a little bit of what you've worked hard to get and set it aside over here and give it to these people. They said, if these people are hungry enough, they'll come out to your fields and get it themselves and cook it and eat it. Doesn't that restore dignity? There are times when we are all in need and we're all in, in need of some help, but I, I like the Bible's way of doing it somehow or another. It just, it's, it's, a, it's a dignified way, isn't it? But this was customary. This is how they went about it. Most of all, we find Jesus' words here the most clarifying when he says, He is Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 5, he said to them that the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. He is free to do on it with whatever he pleases. Not only does this establish his authority, but it's also a claim of deity right in the face of the religious leaders, forcing them to have to choose. I think this was Nicodemus' bout. In John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus by night. He didn't just happen to come to him at night, and that's what John records for us, that this happened at night. Nicodemus waited until it was night to come to Jesus because he wanted to do it secretly under the cover of darkness because he was afraid what just even a conversation with Jesus would do to his reputation in the religious circles of their day. And in John 3, we, we, lead, we read as he says, what must I do to be, to be born again or to, to have eternal life? And Jesus says, you must be born again. We get some of our favorite verses in all the Scripture from this interaction. That leads over to John 3.15, John 3.16, John 3.17. Great passages of Scripture. But in that, even Nicodemus, who if I had to say was one of the better Pharisees, I'd say he was one of the better Pharisees, I think. Even he went privately, secretly, because faced up with this thing of, is this the God-man? They were very, very quick to not embrace that ideology if you're unsaved here this morning if you're wondering about faith if you're wondering about religion if you're wondering about eternity you're in that same dilemma you're trying to decide i don't think you'd be sitting in a baptist church this morning if you didn't think at least jesus was a real person but believing in jesus is more than that isn't it It's this idea that Jesus is Lord. Is he God? It's a question of deity. Jesus said he is Lord of the Sabbath. Right there, that's the end of the argument, if you believe Jesus is God, right? But if you're a religious leader and you've been teaching something else about God, and then this guy goes and does one of the things that's just not supposed to do, well, he can't be God. How can the God they'd been teaching... Go do the things that they've just been on people about. Don't do these things. And it's funny how religious leaders work in this regard. Oh, we believe God has the power to heal, but on the Sabbath we have other things to do. And that would actually be work, so we probably shouldn't do that. And then they take off on Monday. Well, it had been Sunday for them, right? I'm making fun of modern pastors too. Isn't every day God's day? For our understanding in these days, we take away from this passage that God is more concerned about meeting human needs than he is about protecting religious rules. It was better that David and his men receive strength to serve God 
than that they starve for the sake of a temporary law. Teaching us that God desires compassion above sacrifice. Matthew 12, 7 says, But if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the guiltless. That's a quotation in Matthew from Hosea 6, 6. Hosea 6, 6 is God saying, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Something about human nature, though, that I doesn't always jive with. We, 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 we find it easier to want an experiential knowledge of God than an intellectual knowledge of God because the intellectual God knowledge does two things. It causes us to work for it just a little bit. We have to put some effort in. And two, it doesn't allow us to use our intellectual capacities for the pleasurable things that we prefer to do above the biblical things. And God says... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire you have the knowledge of God more than I want your burnt offerings. If you're a Sunday morning only Christian, well, this is highly convicting to you. The Pharisees, of course, though, they had a different view of the law. In fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes them for this different view of the law that they have here. Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay the tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, but you've omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. Notice what he says here, Matthew 23, 24. He says, you blind guides, which strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Boy, that's a that's an accusation, isn't it? When I was a kid, I, there was a, a man in my life who would say to me at times, boy, sometimes you're so smart, you're stupid. That was just a nice way of saying you're really stupid. But I think that's sort of what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? He said, you're blind guides. You'll strain at a gnat while you're swallowing a camel. In verse 25, he says again to them, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, he calls them. For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. This is Jesus' rebuke to those who would say, It's not right for you guys to glean and eat on the Sabbath. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. If it was right for David and his men then, it is right for Jesus and his men now, even more so. The second rebuke then, as we go on in this story, and it was on another Sabbath, verse 6 says, it came to pass also on another Sabbath. They say it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus had already established prior to this his right as Lord to do as he will on the Sabbath. By doing this miracle, the Lord of the Sabbath was revealing one of the true purposes of the day which is to keep the law of mercy and the law of love. Earlier, Jesus told a story about David to show that there are certain things we may do on the Sabbath that are works of necessity. But by performing this miracle, he was showing that there is also something we must do on the Sabbath, which is to show mercy. This is not just something that is allowable in, 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 in certain times. This is something that is a must. Now, we don't want to miss the greater point that Jesus is working toward here. He's soon going to go to the cross. And on the cross, he's going to restore rest. Now, be sure you understand 
rest in the context of all of Scripture. Rest in the context of all of Scripture is what was lost at the curse. Man sinned in a state of perfect rest. Sinlessness. Boy, don't you, do you ever get tired of the struggle of sin in your life? Where you get no rest? CJ, y'all going to have to sit down and be still back there, boys. Where's your mamas? All right, go sit with your mama. CJ and Jesse, go sit with your parents, please. Thank you. We, we get in the struggle of sin, and it won't stop. It just goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. And, and sometimes when I'm repenting of my sinning, I'll say to God, God, I'm even sick of having to repent to you of my sinning. Well, this is the lack of rest. Man had it. Man was created in it. God created all that there was, and then he had rest. He fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden in that state of rest. What did he take from them through the curse? He said, now, Adam, you're going to labor, but you're going to labor with sweat on your brow. Prior, he was laboring with rest. And the same would apply to Eve through the normal processes of life. There would come pain. There would come strain. There would come just the lack of rest. Work. Jesus is going to the cross, and the work is going to stop, and grace is going to come in. He's getting ready to restore that. He's teaching here to the religious leaders and anybody else who would be around that this yoke of religion that they've been over as a part of for all this time is awfully heavy. But what does Jesus later go on to say about his own yoke? Oh, it's easy. What does he say about his own burden? Oh, it's awfully light. Oh, those are the kind of burdens I like to tote. We, uh, after the men's Bible study a few weeks back, we, I, I showed you guys a study Bible, and several of you said, I'd like to have one of those to use in my home. They're here, men, If you, those of you who wanted one. But it, they was at the front door this morning, and I said, oh, right, those are those Bibles we've been waiting on to get like early Christmas for a preacher, a whole box of Bibles, you know. Not that they're even mine, but it was just neat to tote them. But as soon as I picked them up, I thought, oh, where's Stephen? <laughs> that was the first thing that came to my mind. If he's around, he could tote these out there. It was a heavy burden. It was not a light burden. It was a straining yoke. It was not an easy yoke. Jesus is trying to pre- present this here, but we find out something about religious humans. It's self-satisfying. It's self-gratifying. To be religious and put heavy yokes on ourselves. And to feel like we're toting hard loads instead of easy loads. In fact, when it starts getting easy, we get a little eerie because we think, I'm an awful sinner. So it can't, this can't be right. Well, I would encourage you, Christian, to embrace the easy yoke of Christ. He's already carried the weight. Why are you, why are you adding on weight? You'd smile more if you'd be in the grace that God's provided for you instead of the own the damnation you put upon yourselves after He's provided grace for you. Can you imagine if you came by my house one day and you saw me out there with a pair of scissors cutting my grass? You won't. Don't, don't even think you will. But, but if you did, and you said, well, Chance, there's a better way. Well, what's the better way? Well, they make these machines now with motors on top and this big blade. You can get them in all sizes. They get really wide and really small. And just in a few minutes, you can do what you're doing with those scissors. 
God, that sounds good. And you came back by and I was still cutting my scissors. He said, well, I told you there's a better way. Yeah, well, I don't want to spend the money. So you said, well, I'll go get you one. Push more, 100 bucks. And you showed up to my house and you gave me a push more. And I hugged your neck. Thank you very much for this. And I put it away in the closet back there. And you came back and I'm still cutting my scissors. He said, I bought you a mower. Why are you not? You? Well, I didn't want to get it dirty. I didn't want to use up the gas that was in it. I didn't want to scratch the deck. And besides, this is the way I've always done it. Well, I know it hurts my back and my knees. I have to sharpen these scissors all the time. and I've got blisters on my hands, but, you know, it's just kind of how I've always done it. It's exactly what the Jews are doing to Jesus. He's saying to them, there's rest and grace prior to labor, and then your work will be fulfilling and fruitful. But you're deciding to work anyways and then get your rest at the end as if you've earned it. And they're just saying back, well, we don't want to. We don't want to step up on your goodness. We don't want to wear out our welcome. And if you're God, what are you saying there? Look, you've, you wore out your welcome a long time ago. Go with me to Romans 5. Romans 5 is one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. We should at least have verse 1 underlined and memorized, but if you don't, work on that. But I want us to look from verse 1 through 11 and notice this flow of information that we have here. And, and I want to start, though, with verse 12. So let me give you the premise from verse 12 and back up to verse 1 and notice what it says here. All right, verse 12, Romans five twelve. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Who is that? Adam. And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And your doctor says, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're going to die of heart disease, cancer, whatever else. You can say, no, sir, doc. I'm going to die from sin. It's been like that for a long time, hasn't it? All right, verse 1 then says this. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a great contrast from verse 12, isn't it? By one man sinned into the world, and death passed upon all men, because all have sinned. But now that we've been justified by what? Works? Faith? We have what with God? Peace with God. So previously, we didn't have peace. When you don't have peace, what do you have? War. Previously, we were at war with God, but now that we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through who? Jesus Christ. And don't miss that, that title that Paul gives him there. It's utterly important, and it's brought up in here in Luke 6, our Lord Jesus Christ. Be careful if you embrace some gospel that gives you a Savior but doesn't give you a Lord. That's not the true gospel. The true gospel, Jesus will be your Savior, but he has to be your Lord. What does it cost to be saved? I know the Baptist answer to that is it don't cost anything at all. It's God's free gift. I'm going to tell you just the opposite of that. The Bible says, in spite of Baptist thinking, it will cost you absolutely everything to be saved. If you think you're saved here this morning and you haven't given up your entire life, every moment, every breath, every thought, every possession, every relationship, you are not saved. It costs you absolutely everything. 
It's a life for a life. Jesus gave his life on the cross. And then for those he saves, you are not your own now because you've been bought with a price. But boy, it's worth it. By Verse 2 says, By whom, Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We don't stand in works anymore. We stand in grace. Standing in works, we sweat and we toil and we complain and we grumble. But standing in grace, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. So even when these bad times come, we can rejoice in those too. We don't got to grumble and complain because we know the tribulation works our patience and our patience gives us experiential knowledge and this experiential knowledge is what brings us our hope. I was just praying to the Lord this morning. I was saying, Lord, I'm an awful sinner. And he reminded me, well, I'm a great Savior. And I said, I know, but Lord, I just keep on sinning and I, I just, I don't feel worthy to get up and preach before these people this morning. Because of myself. And he said, well, just preach me. He said, don't forget to tell them about the hope that they have in me. That there's a great day coming when the battle with sin will be over. Praise the Lord. Patience works experience and experience works hope. And hope makes us not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Oh, it's not a hope with no evidence. You hope you win the lottery. You might or you might not. Whether you believe in tithing or not, if you win the lottery, tithe. But gospel hope is a hope that's backed up by the earnest of the Holy Spirit of God. If you've ever bought or sold a house, there's always some earnest involved. It's too large of a transaction to let people just do it on a whim. So they say, you've got to put your money where your mouth is and put your money where your pen is. It's exactly how God operates here. Jesus said, I'll do it. And he said, I'll prove to you that I'll do it because the Holy Spirit will come and hold you over till I get here. And there he is. Praise the Lord for this. Verse 6, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. These Pharisees in Luke 6, they're without strength, but they're trying to be strong. You ever seen a scrawny little kid try to seem strong? I have four of them in my house. Sorry, Jack, I know that's offensive. He's gotten bigger than me, but I can still take him. He tried this summer in the pool. He said, I'm going to take Dad under. I said, go for it, big boy. How many times did I take him down? Enough that his mama finally said, now stop before somebody gets hurt. Why are you hiding behind that computer back there? Amen, Jacob. You'll never be able to take Steve down. Parker is asleep, I think. But Parker is, is as scrawny as they come. He's not, he doesn't, he's not like the typical Stricklands. If you've noticed, he's thin as a rail, and he hadn't quite got the height there yet. We're praying for him. Hopefully he'll come around. Uh, but if, if you didn't know better, though, you'd thought Parker was He-Man. Those of you who don't know who He-Man is, I don't know what to tell you. You need to. Get back to the 80s where living was good. But he'll be out in the yard, and boy, he'll, he'll be pretending. He'll hit home runs, and he'll be lifting weights, and he'll be boxing, and he'll be doing all this. And he's just this specimen of a, a, specimen of a man to himself. 
And sometimes he'll get bold and he'll want to run at one of his little brothers and they'll just kind of thump and he'll fall over. Well, this is the idea here. Verse 6, we were without strength. The religious leaders are saying, well, hang on, Jesus. You can't be doing that on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'll be honest. I've tried really hard in the day and age we're living in to not be uh, culturally influenced in the pulpit. But some things just come up naturally, so I've got to give them to you. This idiotic idea that we're going to defund the police, who's going to enforce that? You'd need police. Stupidity. Anyways, when we were the... (laughs) Sorry. I try. I promise I do. From we were yet without strength, we were weak. What happened? Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Now notice Paul's logic here. We didn't earn this. We weren't good enough for this. We didn't deserve this. Even only rarely... Well, somebody died for someone who's just tops. And then peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God. Now, when you see but God in Scripture, what do you do there? You sit up and you listen. You underline whatever is said next in your Bibles because it's important. When God interjects himself, something big's about to happen. Scarcely for the righteous will one die. Even only sometimes will somebody dare to die for even a good man. Not, not to mention bad people. But God commended his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Praise the Lord. In spite of ourselves, He died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Don't forget verse 9. Anything that calls itself Christian but believes that we're saved from anything but the wrath of God has missed the point. And verse 9 is a great proof text from that. By Christ's blood, we've been justified and saved from God's wrath. What have you been saved from? The wrath of God. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. While we were enemies. Now verse 1 says, now we are at peace with God. But we were enemies. But then we've been reconciled to God. Reconciliation is a financial term. It's when the, the, the columns match and the budget is balanced. It's kind of a thing. There was a debt, but it's, there's been a credit now. and It's been paid in full. That's what happened in verse 10. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. You don't miss that big word. Reconciliation is not possible without an atonement. Atonement is a blood sacrifice to pay the price. They had tried atonement through the Old Testament system in the tabernacle for years. Blood, goats, whatever, lambs. But then one day this dude named John's preaching this baptism of preparation and he looks out over the hill there and what does he say? Behold, there's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. The one spotless Lamb for all of time and for all of eternity Paul writes here and says that's how we've received reconciliation is through this atonement. Which leads us all back to that initial verse. As by one man centered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Go to Philippians 4. So Romans 5, we get this idea that when a sinner trusts the Savior, he has peace with God because his sins are forgiven and he is reconciled to God. 
Now, these are illustrative of the big point here. The yoke of religion is awfully heavy, but Jesus' burden is light. Works will not do, and grace is all you need. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 then brings us into this idea of as justified, as believers, when we yield to Christ in daily experience, we enjoy the peace of God in our hearts and our minds. Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Don't be anxious about anything, but be praying about everything. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And I'll submit to you intellectual Christians, so many of us have fallen into this trap of, well, I know what the Bible says, I know that God confirmed it in prayer, but I still just can't wrap my mind around it, so I can't give myself peace. When the Bible's been clear there, that if we'll stop worrying, if we'll keep on praying, God's peace beyond your understanding, you're not going to be able to understand everything. But you'll be able to have peace in the lack of your understanding. But what's that going to take? Faith. You're just going to have to blindly trust. I know that's hard. Men, that's especially hard for you because you sometimes blindly trust your own handiwork around the house. And in the middle of the night, you hear a drip. And you realize maybe I'm not as a good plumber as I thought I was. Ladies, I know that's hard for you. Because you blindly trust the man that God has given to you. But then you find out that he's still sin cursed. Don't blame me, just blame Adam. But God is not a man. And God is certainly not a plumber. God is God. He is Lord. And his instruction to you is, why are you anxious? Jesus himself taught it like this. He said, you you guys are worried about what you're going to eat. Look out there at the birds. Not one day have they labored. Not one day have they planted. Not one day have they sowed. Boy, and they eat better than any farmer you've ever seen before. Look at the flowers. You guys are worried you're going to starve to get death and that you're going to go naked or that you're not going to be in style when you get those clothes on. He says, you've never seen anybody arrayed as beautifully as the flowers of the field. And they've never been shopping. They've never even had money to go shopping. And look how God clothes them. Why are we anxious? Why can't we absorb the peace of God? Well, we can't absorb it because we like for it to be within the grasp of our understanding. But here's the thing about the peace of God. It's going to surpass your understanding. So in spite of what you're able to understand and wrap your head around, he's going to give you peace on top of that, and that peace will keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. This is the the battle. Go back to Luke 6. The battle that the, the Pharisees are having with Jesus here. It's not really about the Sabbath for them. It's not really about feeding the needy for them. It's not really about healing for them. It's about lordship for them. And I would say to you this morning, Christian, and especially to those of you who are unbelievers, it's about lordship for you as well. Christian, the reason you have so much anxiety is because you like to be Lord. You know how I know? Because I like to be Lord too. But Jesus is Lord. He is preeminent. Then in verse 12, we, we see that Jesus is Lord because of his pupils. 
And I just did that to alliterate horrible terminology there. The apostles, they would probably be offended at me for calling them pupils. That's what they were. Notice verse 12, and it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he also surnamed Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which was also the traitor. Now I want you to note here that Jesus selects twelve specific ones out of all his followers to be the apostles which would fulfill a key role in the manifestation of the church on the earth. But don't miss an important step here. Some of you have very important roles. You make very serious decisions. You do things that affect more than just you, that impact lots of other people around you. Verse 12 says, before Jesus did any of this, and this is the Lord of the Sabbath, what did he do? He got off by himself. And some of you who are itching to go see fall leaves, you like verse 12. He went out into the mountains. (laughs) But he didn't go to the mountains to see fall leaves. He went to the mountains to pray. And how long did he pray? All night. And after that, he named the apostles. We have Simon. You know Simon as Peter. Jesus renamed him that. He's the son of Jonah. He's one of the most prominent of the apostles, preached the great sermon on the day of Pentecost. Then we have Andrew, who is Simon's brother. Andrew's the one who introduced Peter to Jesus. James, the son of Zebedee, and there's another James, but this is James, the son of Zebedee. He would be the James who, with Peter and John, were at the Mount of Transfiguration. These You know, there's 12 followers, but only three went with Jesus to this special time here. This James was killed by Herod Agrippa I. We have John, the son of Zebedee. So he's James's brother, and Jesus called this James and John. What was their nickname? The Sons of Thunder. That's a cool nickname. These these were not wimps. (laughs) I, I think probably when they, well, never. I was going to make a cultural song reference. I won't make it from a pulpit. Thunder. It was this John who wrote the gospel and the epistles bearing his name. He also wrote the book of Revelation. So the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then Jesus' revelation recorded by John. Then we have Philip, who was from Bethsaida. He introduced Nathaniel to Jesus. This is not Philip the evangelist from the book of Acts. You remember you read about Philip? That dude was a runner, an evangelist, and a preacher. This is not that Philip. This is Philip the Apostle. Bartholomew, Mew, who we also know as Nathaniel. We don't know much else about him other than he's listed here. Uh, Matthew, we found him last week. He's Levi, the tax collector. And then Matthew is, he wrote the first gospel. I don't know that he wrote, wrote it first, but he's the first one in our New Testaments. Then we have Thomas. What do you know about Thomas? Yeah, we call him Doubting Thomas. Um, That offends me at times because I find myself more and more like Thomas. He didn't doubt. He just said, I want to see some proof before I believe. Are we not all kind of that way? Then we have James, the son of Alphaeus. Best we could tell in church history, he would have held the elder role in the church in Jerusalem after 
James, the son of Zebedee, the son of Thunder, had been killed by Herod. Then we have Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot. A little bit, not much is known about him. Uh, Judas, the son of James. This is not Iscariot, not the betrayer. This is another Judas. Um, A lot of folks would say this is Jude, who wrote the, the, the epistle of Jude, or Thaddeus would be another name for him. We refine that in Matthew 10 and Mark 3. And then the 12th one would be Judas Iscariot. Um, Judas Iscariot was, one of, was the only one of the apostles who wasn't from Galilee. I think that's unique. But, but he's called by Jesus himself the son of perdition, and he was the one who betrayed the Lord. A lot of people struggle with Judas's apostleship because he killed himself and he had to be replaced. But remember what an apostle was one selected by God to fulfill a specific purpose in the establishment of the church or in the plan of redemption. Judas certainly fulfilled a specific purpose. Um, A thing to note about these guys, for you guys now, is that Jesus didn't specifically choose them because of their talents. I think they all brought something to the table. I think these were all talented men who had gifting to be able to fulfill the role that he gave them. But the thing that made these guys great was their relationship with Jesus Christ and their commitment to Jesus Christ. It seems like these are young men that he calls. I don't really have any proof of that, but it seems like that. In my mind, I put them in their early 20s or late 20s. But certainly we can see that in a life, the younger that service begins, the better. Just statistically, there's more life to live, hopefully, in there. But also when you're young, you have more zeal. Hopefully when you're young, you're, you're more teachable. You also have less attachments. So as you're younger, this morning I would encourage you to hear the call of Christ our Savior. Answer that call and give your life to Him in service. I also want you to note that Jesus only selected 12 disciples here. He was interested in quality more than quantity. If you're about to turn the world upside down, you or I, or any Baptist group, we'd want the largest group we could get, wouldn't we? I love a Charles Spurgeon quote in that regards. He says, just because a church is large doesn't mean it's healthy. It could just be swollen. Mm, that's fantastic. Baptists, we rely way too heavily on large crowds as our measure of success. But Jesus here, he only selects 12. As if to say, given the right caliber of men, he could evangelize the entire world. And these men, before they died, believed they had done that. It brings to mind what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We just studied this in class a few weeks back. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29. Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. So Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. His presence demands preeminence in every life. Jesus has called to himself followers specifically for a task. 
We must be submitted to that calling. And it's not because of us that he calls. It's because of him. And then finally, verse 17, 18, 19 is where we end. We think about Jesus being Lord. We also want to note his power. And he came down with them and stood in the plain. And the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, when they were, and they were healed, and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went, out, there went virtue out of him and healed them all. So after calling his twelve apostles, before he preaches his great sermon on the mount, he takes some time heal, here to heal many needy people. So it's a demonstration of his power, but I think it's also a demonstration of his compassion. It was a reminder to his newly appointed apostles of their job that it was to share his love with a needy world as they shared his power. Warren Wiersbe wrote this in the 1990s, so his numbers are off just a little bit. But in the 90s, he said it is estimated that there were 300 million people in the world in Jesus' day, while there are over 5 billion today, four-fifths of them in the less developed nations. Take that into account. How many billions are in the world today, we think? I heard six, seven, and eight, all more than five, and a billion's a lot. So if we just add one billion to that, it's a bunch. We had three billions, that's a whole, whole lot. But then the statistics we have for religious reasons are that four-fifths, I'm not great at fractions, but four-fifths of those people, what, almost 90%? What's the, what's the percentage there? All right, I'm still better at you at math, though. 80% of those people aren't in places like here, not like in America. And it's easy for us to look around and say, there's a lot of people around here. This is where most of the people are. And where, when your mind goes to, like, less developed places, you usually, do you usually see less people in your minds there? But that's not statistically true. And the point being that while the church does have an influence and an impact right around here, and it's important, we also have a great challenge. And we see that here in that Jesus is Lord and the need for his preeminence, his calling to his pupils, and then his power to enable those pupils. Christ has the power. He is calling his church to himself. But church, we must answer the call this morning. Are we demonstrating his power and his compassion to a world in need? Not just a community. Not just a portion of that community. God, help us to be less self-centered and more gospel globally minded. Many of us are afraid to pray that our children will become missionaries because it would just screw up our Christmas plans. Many of us are afraid to heed our own call to go and share the gospel somewhere else because we've got a nice cushy life here that we like. And for those reasons, people are never getting to hear the goodness of the gospel of God's grace. And, and we can think to ourselves, well, at least it's not during the time of the Pharisees. But I would submit to you this morning, the one sect of modern religion that's not slowing down, well, there's two, I guess. Muslims, for sure, are not slowing down in 
evangelizing, and the Catholic Church is not slowing down in evangelizing. Nearly everywhere you go, every remote place, there's some impact of Catholicism there. And what are they doing? They're just putting new Judaism on top of people. Work, 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 and hopefully we can get you rest. But true Christianity doesn't say that at all. It says Jesus has given you rest. Now in that rest, go enjoy those labors that he's called you to. People of grace, beg you this morning. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. Jesus is Lord. Would you quit trying to have the preeminence in your own life and say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to God. Let's stand and pray. I'll leave you with Philippians 2 this morning, verses 4 through 11. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has chosen to use redeemed humans to fulfill his will within this age. He has the power to heal. He has the power to redeem. He has the power to restore. And he's bestowed that power through the church. So we, the church, have to have the mentality of Philippians 2.4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Are you going to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? Are you going to say, oh, I'm just going to trust in the things I can understand, even if it voids for me that peace that God can give me that will surpass everything I understand? God hasn't called you to salvation, put you in a Bible church, given us resources to send you for you just to sit here. Some of you this morning are battling the call to salvation and you need to surrender to salvation. But I imagine most of you here this morning are battling the call to service. You've checked some boxes. You feel like you've done enough in your life. Well, I tell you, you haven't. There's breath in your lungs. It's time to get up and go and surrender. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you've allowed us, you've called us to be part of your church. Lord, we confess that we don't often give as we should as members of your church. So bless this time as we give up ourselves this morning to you as the preeminent Lord. God, help us to reenter school as your pupils. Say, Lord, where would you have me to go? What would you have me to do? And thank you, Lord, for the promise of the power to do whatever it is you've called us to. Bless this time as we respond now in Jesus' name.